Now, the Apostle Peter has been talking about how Christians relate to one another in the past few weeks. Um, now we are going to shift our attention and not in, to not how Christians relate to one another, but to how Christians relate to an unbelieving and lost world. So the question today is how do we, as citizens of a future heavenly kingdom, live presently in an earthly and evil age that is opposed to us and increasingly more opposed to us? That's the question that Peter, I believe, is going to answer for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25, if you'll read with me. <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. <clears throat> for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your word. I ask now that I would get out of its way and your way, and I would just be a vessel to speak to your people. And please build up your church right now in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so the question is, how do we as citizens of another kingdom live in a kingdom that's opposed to us? Um, basically, Mark preached my whole sermon in his prayer as sojourners and exiles, um, how are we to live in a world that is opposed to us? Um, 
the flesh wars against us. And some of you have felt that and experienced that and do experience that war on a daily basis. Unbelievers will speak evil against us with mouths of lions. And Christians have suffered great injustices at the hands of cruel men throughout the history of the church and even in the church today, though perhaps not in this country as severely. Now, this is... Our country is different than first century Christians. We have a much better situation in in our country today, and I am glad to be in America, and I'm thankful to be an American. But history ebbs and flows. Um, And in your own life, you will perhaps be spoken of as evil because you're a Christian, and if you hold to Christian truth, and you'll be cre- and perhaps you'll be treated with great injustice. So the question is, how does God expect you to respond when you are spoken of as evil and treated up with great injustice because of your faith and commitment to Jesus Christ? How do you respond? <clears throat> I believe the Lord would have us respond with power. And that might be surprising looking at this passage, but I want to show you that the Lord would have you respond to great injustices and evil when spoken against against you with great power. Now there are different ideas today on how the church should approach the government with power and the world with power. I mean, we are the truth we are the ones that upon whom we uh, Christ is, or rather, the Lord has built us upon Christ. We are the sons of God, and so we should come out of the world with power. And I agree with that. So how should how how should we bring forth this power to a lost and dying world? Uh, I want to ask a few questions about this passage. <coughs> with you um, that might help us think through how we can approach the world with power. Three questions. Question number one, how should we as strangers and exiles in a world that hates our values live in this world? Two words, war and witness, and I'm getting that from verses 11 and 12. War and witness. That is the big picture standard for how a Christian should live in opposition to the world, the flesh, and the devil. War and witness. Peter says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul because the passions of your flesh want to kill and conquer your soul. That's why you would wage war. And that's why the flesh does wage war against you. The sinful desires, if they triumph over a person, will eventually crush that person's faith 
and then destroy that person's soul. This is how sin permeates and eventually destroys a man or a woman. James tells us about this in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you see, and I, I know you've heard me say this before, but it, sin wants to incarnate itself in you and eventually control you and eventually crush your faith. Sin is crouching at the door, God said to um, Cain, and its desire is to have you. <clears throat> so what do you do against sin when it's crouching at the door when its desire is to permeate your spirit and control the words you say, the actions that you do, what do you do? Peter says abstain. That means make distance from. So if you don't wish to sin, don't sit at the door of temptation. Abstain from the passions of the flesh because they wage war against your soul. And then the apostle Peter, uh, Paul says do battle. And not just abstain, but do battle with the flesh. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I can say to you with great confidence, you have no power over sin. But the spirit within you has great power over sin. So, when I say that you should approach the flesh with power, I don't mean your power. I mean the power of the Holy Spirit within you who mediates Christ's strength to you. And therefore, you can strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path for your feet. We have been down this road many times in this church, but I hope it is crystal clear that you are not a jellyfish. I heard John John Piper say one time, you are not a jellyfish caught in the current of lust if you're a Christian. So strengthen your weak knees by the power of the Holy Spirit and make straight the path for your feet and do war with the flesh and sin, and the devil. That's how you live in opposition to sin in the flesh. The second word that gives a picture of the Christian life is witness. Peter says in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is saying that honorable conduct, being an honorable and representative citizen in the world or nation you live in, is how you will glorify God when you are spoken of as evil. 
Peter says, when they speak of you as evildoers, not if they speak of you as evildoers. And I'm sure you have seen this, whether in the news or social media, or you've experienced this yourself, even with your family and those closest to you. A Christian's reputation will precede them. Precede them. <clears throat> Meaning the world has created a narrative about Christian values and truth. So we're not catechizing our children to the world. We're brainwashing them. Uh, we're not pro-life, but we're suppressing women. We're not holding to a biblical vision of marriage, but we are intolerant, stupid, and antiquated for our views of sexuality. So that's what I mean by our reputation precedes us. They don't think, well, what honorable people. They think we're, we're ignorant. <clears throat> so, what do you do? How do you, how do you combat this? Peter simply says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that they may see your good works. That is, when they see you with a contrite, humble, honest life of integrity and true faith, the Apostle Peter assumes that it will demonstrate that their accusations against you do not actually correspond to the truth. You're not actually an intolerant bigot who wants to brainwash their children. You're actually somebody who truly believes God has spoken through Jesus Christ. And that's been written down in the scriptures for us through the apostles and the prophets. And we are honestly clinging to him in faith so that they may see your good works and glorify God. So don't, don't brothers and sisters, believe that strength means standing up for yourself all the time. Sometimes and very often, and in this passage, Peter is telling us to humbly and faithfully put your heads down and live an honorable Christ-like life. And that will glorify God. <clears throat> so I, as, I'm, as I read the Bible, Jesus and the apostles assume that a manner of life which is empowered by the Holy Spirit, will have the effect of glorifying God in the eyes of the watching world. Jesus says the same thing as well. You are the light of the world. So shine, do good works so that others might see it and give glory to your Father in heaven. So you see Jesus' pattern of thought there. The assumption by Jesus and by Peter here is that by doing good works, that is living a life of integrity and faith and Christ-likeness with humility, will eventually produce the glory of God somehow in the eyes of the watching world. Cream rises to the top, I believe. Now, it's been 2,000 years but the kingdom of God has grown like a mustard seed, has it not? So I'm talking about playing the long game. Playing the long and being a part, just a part, just one stone in the great building or a temple that God is building for his glory. And Christ will see it to completion at the appointed time.
Now, Peter says, when will they glorify God? On the day of visitation, verse 12. So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This could mean two different things. This could mean that they will glorify God when they are judged, or they will glorify God by coming to Christ. So, by glorifying God, the day of visitation could mean that God will be glorified when Christians are vindicated on the day of judgment. And they are vindicated before the eyes of the unbelieving and hateful world. And they will bow, and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yet they will not be spared from judgment. That could be what it means. What Peter has in mind here. Or the day of visitation could refer, or Peter could be referring to their salvation of the unbelieving world. Glorify God on the day of visitation could mean that seeing our good deeds and our life of Christ-like integrity, they will actually become Christians, which in turn will glorify God when Christ comes to reap the harvest and having more people trust in Christ and their Lord and Savior and worship Him will actually increase His praises when He comes to reap that harvest. So, scholars seem to be divided on this issue, what exactly Peter has in mind. I think... While I do believe those who reject Christ will still bow the knee on Judgment Day, I think perhaps what Peter has in mind here is that the the harvest of more Christians will glorify God when he comes to visit and reap his harvest. And that's what Paul says about his missions in 2 Corinthians 4.15. He says that he wants to spread the gospel so that as the word increases to more and more, it may increase praise to the glory of God. So, (coughs) what Peter is saying is that living a life of Christ-like humility and integrity has the power to melt the coldest mind and the bitter heart, if I'm right about Peter's view of the day of visitation. And our witness, our being salt and light in the world, along with the message, will have the effect of increasing the great harvest and thus glorifying God when he comes to visit and collect those who belong to him. Now, so, Peter saying, be a representative citizen. Look at the passage. I know, I know we want something strong. We want something to hit them with. We, we really want to show some strength and power. But Peter is not giving that in this passage. He simply says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak evil against you, they may see that that evil speech does not actually correspond to how you live. And it will glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, although Peter and Jesus want our lives to glorify God, 
it is true that what you do, and no matter how Christ-like you live, you will still be hated by the world very often. So don't think I'm saying, go out there and impress unbelievers. That's not what I'm saying. Because you're not going to impress them. You're not going to win everyone to Christ because you're so gracious and Christ-like. If Christ is hated, then you will be hated as well. And Jesus said the very, that very thing. So no matter how humble, how honest, how much integrity you live with, you will still be hated by the world because your shepherd was hated by the lost and dying world. And so that doesn't mean that you failed as a Christian when you're hated. And when you're mocked and when you're spoken of as evil, that doesn't mean you failed. That actually means, perhaps, that you're simply following the master. But the offense should not be your character. It should be the truth that you adorn for yourself. It should be the Christ-likeness that you live. Not your character. Not because you're vitriolic, because you, you, you want to retaliate, because you want to show how strong you are, because you're just using Christian language in order to justify your frustration and hatred towards the world. So, that is the way that we live in a lost and dying world that opposes us. We war against sin, and we live as witnesses, and entrust it to the Lord. Now the rest of this passage is dominated by not war, but witness. <clears throat> Peter's dominant burden now is to show how we can be a witness in government and how slaves can be a witness to their master. So here's my next question. Question number two. <clears throat> How can you put to silence the foolish accusations of the world? How can you shut up the mouths of lions? Remember there was one atheist who wrote a book called God is Not Great. Look at all the hateful things Christians have done in the world. So how do, you, how do you shut up the mouth of a lion like that? How do you put to silence the foolish accusations of the world? 1 Peter 13. Be subject, uh, 2 verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So he says, be subject for the Lord's sake, that is for the reputation of Christ's name. Be subject. To be subject just means to arrange yourself under the authority of another. And Peter is saying, arrange yourself under the authority of the government that God has placed you in. Look at verse 13 very closely. Because I'm not coming at this with any kind of agenda or some kind of squishy or soft agenda. I can't stand that. But I cannot also stand horrible exegesis. So, look at the passage. 
It's not me who's, who's giving this truth. This is the Apostle Peter. Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Interestingly, Peter was killed by the very emperor that he is referring to in this passage. So we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That is to say, Christ has put his name on you. You are a Christian. He has put his name on you. And so those who adorn the name of Christ ought to walk how? As Christ walked. And his people are not to be seen as wide-eyed anarchists in the world who want to just go and start a revolution somewhere. But as humble representatives of the Master. Not as people who are a danger to law and order, but as a people who subject themselves and live as decent representative citizens in the world that God has given us, in the place that God has put us in. This is how, the Apostle Peter says, God wants us to shut people up. Verse 15. For this is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How does God want us to put to silence ignorant accusations? By doing good. Not by being a wide-eyed revolutionary, but by being a representative, humble, and Christ-like citizen. So that then when they speak of you as evil, it is clearly inaccurate, because they will see that Christians are the tax-paying, humble, honorable, representative citizens who love God love the brotherhood, and do good to the, their neighbor. Again, the offense of Christianity is the message, not the character of the person giving the message. One scholar gives us kind of a background. He says, in the first century, Christians were regarded as the scum of the earth in Rome at the time. And they must not get an additional reputation as troublemakers. No good will come to the cause of the gospel by followers of Jesus being regarded as crazy dissidents who won't cooperate with the most basic social mechanisms. So, cooperate with law and order, Peter is saying. Don't use your freedom, verse 16, as a cover-up for evil. You see, what I'm, you see what he's saying? Don't use your freedom in Christ and the fact that you are a son or daughter of God. Don't adopt that language and use it as a cover to really live according to your flesh. <clears throat> when I was a young man, just starting out to really read the Bible for the first time in my early 20s, just on a daily basis, I started to really latch on to apologetics. Apologetics is a branch of theology, just which means 
the defense of the faith. We're not apologizing, apologizing, we're defending, we're giving our reason for the hope that is within us. And one of these men that opened my eyes to the reality of biblical witness, he was giving arguments for the existence of God and using science. And I was astounded that someone was actually proving Christianity. I always thought that Christian Christianity was true, but it was like true like in a way that's one step removed from reality true. It was like true kind of over there, but not in the world we live in. But this this help this man helped me see understand incredible arguments for the existence of God using science debu- debunking the naturalistic worldview. Um, but my heart was broken a few years later as I learned after imbibing his books and our books and uh, videos and his website that this man was actually imprisoned for a decade for cheating on his taxes with his ministry. And now I look at him as a more mature Christian and I see, I see a very immature man who just learned some good arguments. That is what I mean by don't, and that's what Peter probably means by don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. I know there are a lot of taxes you have to pay. Me and Nydia got crushed last year by taxes. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of you guys do too. But to be a representative citizen in the world that God has placed us in means abiding by law and order. Yet we're free. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You know, Jesus also believed he was free from paying taxes. But what did he do? Matthew 17, verse 25 through 27. <clears throat> he goes and to go into the to worship, and he is asked for money for the temple. And Jesus says to Peter, Simon, what do you think? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? And when Peter had said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. So Jesus paid when he he was free. And so... He says, in order to not give offense to them. That means in order to represent ourselves according to the structures set by this culture and society, do what they would have you do. So, again, as I read the Bible, we are not told to become anarchists for Christ. We're told to be humble and representative citizens in the name of Jesus Christ. And don't forget, 
Peter is writing in a context that is hostile to Christianity. <clears throat> now, I know a lot of you don't like this. And there's something that in me that doesn't like this as well. It's, I want something strong. So, uh, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but I also want to say that there are times when you should not submit to the government. When should you not submit to the government? Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God the things that are God's, right? So when should you not submit to the government? The moment they say, render to God, or render to Caesar the things that belong to God. That's when you do not obey the government. That's when you defy. And those are the situations in which you defy. The moment Caesar says, render to me what belongs to God. What do you do then? Then you open your windows like Daniel and you pray in defiance towards Zion. Then you appropriate the words of Peter and you say whether it is right in your eyes to obey God or man, you be the judge. Or like China, like the church in China, when they illegalize Christian gathering, you meet underground. When I was in Nyack College, we had a speaker come from Afghanistan, who was a pastor in Afghanistan, and Christianity was all but illegal in Afghanistan, and he said, Lord, if you give me a church, I will write on the top of the church in big, bold letters, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he did. And he had um, stories about them being shot at and uh, bombed, and he would find infants in dumpsters and people strewn out on the street. He lived in a horrible situation, but this is a, that is the kind of defiance against the people who illegalized and hated Christianity. I don't even know if he's alive anymore. Who knows what happened to him, but he was, he's an example of strength. That's strength. That's, that, that's real strength. Right? He didn't just post a Bible verse on Instacart or Graham. And um, <laughs> he didn't just post it on social media and he actually lived towards his death for the name of Christ. So, when should you not obey the government? It's when Caesar says, render to me what belongs to God. Polycarp who was a disciple of John, and as you can actually read his letters, you can go to a Christian Ethereal Classic Library online, and you can read all of the, what are you laughing at? <laughs> and you can go, and you can look up all the, the, the writings from the early church fathers. It's incredible. So, Polycarp, um, who was a disciple of John, was a Christian his whole life. And in the 80s, he was, in, what, in the 80s? When he was 80 or 90, 
he was taken to court and they said, Polycarp, we will kill you unless, and this is all we're asking, you give a pinch of insult, of insult, a pinch of salt and offer it to Caesar as a sacrifice. And Polycarp would not offer a pinch of salt as a sacrifice to a false god, and he was burned at the stake for that. Not even a pinch of insult. So not, don't render even a pinch of what belongs to God to Caesar. Well, pastor, what if they require, what if they punish me and they require a cost? What if it costs my, my job, my money, my family, my life? Gosh, who knows if we'll face that kind of situation. But if we do, then brothers and sisters, it's been granted unto us to suffer for his name. And we know the church has been watered by the blood of the saints. I do not want, I don't, I don't want to be a martyr. I don't want to lose my job, my family, my life. But if they require that kind of pinch of salt, and they require us to render to Caesar what belongs to God, then we must defy. And we ask for the strength that God supplies to help us to do that. But I don't think we should relish. So here's what I'm saying. Don't relish disobeying authority. And I think Peter would agree too. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. Don't be a wide-eyed anarchist running around looking for a fight all over the place. So we should not relish disobeying governmental authority. So what should we do? If the government does eventually require something from us that belongs to God, then we do what we do not want to do because of what we are required to do. You, you get that? Then we do what we don't want to do because of what we're required to do. <coughs> one one um, preacher, I don't know who this is. I was listening to his sermon a few years ago, and I've always remembered this quote. I wrote it down. He said, if the government requires mixed devotion, mix, requires us to mix devotion to Christ with anything else, we do what we do not want to do because of what we are required to do. We defy the government because we are required to obey Christ. And in our defiance, we pray for them and pity them for the wrath that they are incurring upon themselves. Now that is strength. That's, that's the kind of power I'm talking about. That's how you shut the mouths of foolish people. You pray in defiance for them and pity them for the wrath that they are incurring upon themselves. Because they will be judged with fire, and fire is very, 
very painful to be judged with. So, to conclude this point, our default posture according to Christ and the apostles is to live dignified, godly, upright, law-abiding lives. That is what I see in this passage, and I think that's what Peter is instructing us. Third question. How does God want us to react then when treated unjustly? When treated unjustly, <coughs> Peter writes the following. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows or suffering unjustly. Paul is, or Peter is writing to servants. It is not the word doulos, which would mean slaves, but it does mean the same thing, pretty much. It means a slave who works in the house. And so, in Roman culture, during Roman times, what was happening is Christians who were slaves were becoming, or people who were becoming, who were slaves, were becoming Christians. And there were many slaves. I heard one estimate that said one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. And they worked on large estates. They were farmers. Some were tutors. Some earned, uh, some taught children. So they had very, it was, it was such a big, wide thing with various situations. And the way you were treated depended largely upon your master that you were working for. Um, it was not like American slavery, which was ethnic, um, ethnically driven. Um, and the New Testament doesn't even condone any kind of slavery. In the New Testament, Peter, Paul says to, uh, where is he? He says to the slaves, and I think 1 Corinthians, he says, if you can gain your freedom, do so. And the New Testament rebukes and condemns men, man-stealers, people who steal men and enslave them. So the New Testament does not condone slavery, but the New Testament is writing to people who are slaves, who are making their living that way, and who cannot, who could never get out of that situation. This was just the world they lived in. And what he says to slaves... Be subject to your masters. Why? Two guiding motivations Peter gives to be subject to your masters. He says in verse 19, because it's a gracious thing. When mindful of God, you endure suffering. When mindful of God. So not just to endure suffering, but to endure it because of and with God's glory in mind and trusting his vindication. Peter said that's a gracious thing in the eyes of God. That's a beautiful frame and posture in the eyes of God. The second motivation and the foundational motivation Peter gives for submitting and being subject to your masters with respect is because as a Christian, they were called to Christ-like endurance. They were called to Christ-like endurance. Verse 21. 
For to this you have been called, he says to the slaves. This is an amazing thing. We don't hear people talk like this anymore. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Christ was treated unjustly, he did not indulge in the fleshly desire to retaliate. He did not revile, nor did he stoop himself to the weakness of the flesh and indulge himself in threatening some kind of future punishment. When reviled, he did not revile. When threatened, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued entrusting himself to God. That is a great word, entrust. It means to hand something over to someone for safekeeping or stewardship. So what Jesus did is he handed over the insults, the beating, and even the cross to God who judges justly. And he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. So, to face injustice the way Christ faced injustice means that you trust, you entrust that unjust situation, that boss who you want to just, you want to retaliate, you want to pay reviling for reviling. What you do is you entrust that reviling to God who judges justly. And you abstain from the fleshly indulgence, because that's what it is, to retaliate in any way, shape, or form. And you stand strong with Christ-like humility, and you humble yourself, and you endure the the injustice, handing yourself over to God, believing that he will vindicate you. Believing that he will vindicate you. Who does the Lord lift up? The humble. Who does the Lord bring down? The proud. So this is a matter of faith. Do you really believe that? Do we really believe that the Lord lifts up the humble and brings down the proud? When the time is right, he will exalt you, Peter says. Christians are called to follow his steps, he says. Christ left us an example, verse 21, so that you might follow his steps. In verse 24 and 25, Peter wraps this up, and he says, basically, the sin he's talking about, well, let me read it first, and then Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the sin we are able to die to by the power of Christ is the sin of, the, of fleshly retaliation and threatening when facing injustice. The cross and the power of Christ is what gives us the strength to die to that desire and to live in a Christ-like righteous way. Peter, or Paul says this exact thing in Romans 6. He says, do you not know that when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ? And you were raised up with him to walk in the newness of life? So now, the death of Christ actually enables you to resist the fleshly desire to retaliate and to demonstrate yourself and to lift yourself up with pride when treated unjustly. So, Peter is saying to come at the world with power. <coughs> but it's power to resist sin and the flesh. It's the power of a Christ-like life to actually glorify God on the day of visitation. It's the power to resist the fleshly desire and temptation to retaliate when treated unjustly. So the way you should live in a world that hates you is with great power. But it's not the power that this kind of world brings. It's the power that Christ brings. It's a power that empties oneself. You know, pride fills yourself. You're full of yourself. Humility means you're emptying yourself. Now, when you empty yourself, there is room for the Lord to act within you. But if you filled yourself up, you have not prepared your heart. You have not prepared him room. Let every heart prepare him room. If we are filled up with pride and self and desire to retaliate and show ourselves how strong we are, stand up for ourselves all the time, we are filling ourselves up and we are not leaving room for God to act in that situation. If we take up all the room, fill ourselves up and we do the thing ourselves, and we, then there's no room for God to act. You've taken away any opportunity to give to God and entrust the situation to the Lord and watch him to act and watch him act. Now, I realize I have not said everything about relating to government or slavery or sin, and I can't say everything in a sermon. But I am saying what Peter said in this sermon. So just two things to keep in mind. More could be said on this. More could be said. <coughs> but two things to keep in mind. If you completely disagree with me, be careful that that's not your flesh speaking. If God always agrees with your sensibilities, and he never disagrees with you, be very careful that you're not worshiping yourself. 
be very careful. Because God, I, I don't, I want to show government who's boss. So this doesn't suit my sensibilities. I would love, see, well, put that to the side. But our, our, our job as Christians is not to, obviously you know this, it's not to be driven by our sensibilities. God is going to disagree with you at times. And you need to submit and bow the knee and trust that he's wiser than you. He's more powerful than you are. He doesn't need your help. All right? He needs you to obey him. And he doesn't even need that. You need to obey him. Secondly, I've spoken a lot about weakness and humbling yourself and trusting things to God to be vindicated in the end. Please remember the Christian principle that human weakness is how God's strength is perfected in you. That is precisely how God's strength is perfected in you. It is through weakness. So empty yourself of pride and your own strength and God will fill you with his power and his strength whether now or on the day of visitation. I mean, Jesus humbled himself, did he not? And what did God do? He raised him from the dead. Right? So that's the example that we are given in Scripture. What brings divine power into your life and any circumstance you're in? It is to live with Christ-like humility and entrust the situation to the Lord. That's what brings divine power. That's what brings power that raises people from the dead. So, um, our aim as Christians is not to reproduce the first century. Don't get me wrong. I'm not elevating government persecution. I don't, that's not good. And it's not God's will that people hate God and hate his body and kill them. That's a bad thing. I think it's, I think it's pagan countries are, are bad. I mean, this is a pagan, pagan country, but I'm not elevating persecution. This was written in a day of pagan emperors and slavery. And Peter is telling them to endure persecution that is definitely coming down to them. And to endure unjust treatment in a Christ-like way. Our aim as Christians today, though, is not to reproduce the historical context of the first century. That's not what we... We don't want to reproduce emperors persecuting us. What we want to reproduce in any situation we are put is Christ-likeness. So you see, we're not, we don't want to reproduce horrible government. We want to re reproduce Christ-likeness in whatever situation we are in. In fact, I am of the 
persuasion gently that Christianity may take over the world one day. The kingdom of God is like a leaven, little leaven, that a woman hid in dough, and eventually it takes over the whole lump. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows, and eventually all the birds of the air lodge in its branches. Eschatology <clears throat> is very hard, but I have, I have great hope in those kind of passages for a bright and shining future. But the way you affect that future is not the sword, it's the cross. Not the sword, but the cross. We should follow his steps, Peter said. Peter says. And eventually, over time, that Christ-like humility will permeate culture. And he will reign. And he will have dominion. But it will be his way, not by our own strength and power. This is the word of the Lord from Peter. Let's close in a word of prayer.